0: Hi everyone. Welcome to Grey Matter. I'm Reid Hoffman, a general partner at Greylock and co-founder of LinkedIn. Today we'll be discussing the critical relationships between entrepreneurs that form the basis of any company, co-founders, and the investors who partner with them. Joining us today are Alice Bentnick and Matt Clifford, two people who play a unique role in helping to form those relationships around the world. Alice and Matt are the co-founders of Entrepreneur First, an organization that fuels company building by recruiting and investing in individuals at the very earliest stages, before they have a team or often even an idea. I've been a board member to Entrepreneur First since Greylock invested in 2017, and we've seen the organization grow significantly in the past few years. The core mission of the organization is to continually expand their global network of entrepreneurs and investors so that one's geographical location doesn't make or break whether they have the opportunity to participate in the startup ecosystem. Let's hear more about Entrepreneur First straight from the source in London. Alice, Matt, welcome to Gray Matter. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Anytime, and as you guys know, I'm a huge fan, not just because of the amazing work you do, but also because of the mission and the fact that you guys are both you know, great investors and great community builders and great talent finders of entrepreneurs, but also great participants in society and kind of what the mission is of entrepreneurship, essentially helping society. So why don't you give us a brief history of how the two of you met, began working together, and then how did you align on the mission to create a global talent, you know, investor, amplifier, network? Sure.
1: Well, Alice and I met, I guess, over 11 years ago now um, in our first jobs. So we we both graduated from university in the middle of the financial crisis. And we were fortunate to both get jobs at McKinsey, the management consultancy. And we met there and, um, you know, we had a great experience there. But in many ways, I think it it felt to us a little bit like fighting the last battle. And what I mean by that is it felt like we were in London. And, you know, the joke was in London when I graduated university, cool, you can be a a banker, a management consultant, or you could be a failure. Which one do you want? And um, we were sort of sucked into that. And although we had a really great experience, it felt like for some reason, ambitious people in London were missing out on this whole world of technology that I think Alice and I both felt was actually gonna define the 21st century. And so I think where we, you know, where we started was this idea that probably there were many people like us who felt like that. And that actually there were many people all over the world who maybe could be great founders, but were just not in an ecosystem that normalized and encouraged that. And I think we really bonded over that idea.
2: This idea that the world is missing out on some of its best founders, purely because of where they're located, purely because we're in Singapore, for example. In Singapore, if you're an ambitious, highly talented individual, you want to join the government. So we had this feeling that there were individuals, primarily at the start in the UK, but all over the world who just because they weren't in Silicon Valley, just because they weren't exposed to what it means to be a founder and exposed to technology on a daily basis, they weren't making that career choice. And I suppose to your point about impact on society, What happens when your most ambitious individuals your most talented individuals go into banking rather than going into into founding a startup? There are consequences of that. And I suppose thinking about our founding relationship as well. Matt and I had a very traditional co-founder meeting. You know, we met at work. um, We'd work together. But there there is a challenge connected to that in that Matt and I are quite similar. We have reasonably similar backgrounds Um, and that did constrain the kind of startup that we could create. And and sometimes we look back and we say, well, of all the startups we could create, Entrepreneur First, EF, was kind of the only one that we could with our skill set. And that did drive this idea of actually there's something about talented individuals being in silos um, you know the talented technologists aren't necessarily able to meet the people that can catalyze them um, or meet te- other technologists from different disciplines even. So what would it take to bring individuals together who aren't naturally meeting? Um, and, you know, what, what ideas could come out of that?
0: Well, I think you guys are obviously great co-founders of Entrepreneur First, although now having had years of working with you, I actually have confidence you could have done other startups as well and one of the things that obviously you know as i've kind of publicized in various other formats is i really love working with founders who are you know what i call infinite learners who essentially are like okay how are we doing this how do we do this better how do we learn to take this to the next level how do we move faster and you know how do we create something that's magical and you know one of the things that i've participated along the journey with you guys is some of these learnings so let's kind of move to there which is how is Entrepreneur First different from the other programs that aim to build networks, accelerators, et cetera? And then what are the things that you've learned that are why founders who are, you know, prospectively thinking about this, engineers who are prospectively thinking about this, should think, wow, Entrepreneur First is the one that I should be considering.
1: I think the core idea at the heart of EF is that, you know, we start with the unit as the individual not the company, not the startup. And that might sound really counterintuitive, You know, like uh, organizations like Y Combinator have been phenomenally successful taking very early stage companies and you know, getting them ready for the next stage. We start a whole stage further back. We say not, is there a company here, but actually is this individual someone who could be a great founder if paired with the right person? If given the right mentoring, um, if put into the right networks and and that actually is a very different discipline from trying to decide if a seed company is investable, you're answering a lot more hypothetical questions. You're really saying um, you know might there be something in this founder's background that that makes for you know a great idea? Is there the seed of something there you know do they have the characteristics, the personality types that we associate with great founders and so I think like that that's pretty unusual um, you know ninety nine percent of investment programs globally are looking at the company. And I think one thing that, that makes EF really special is we've now spent nine years and literally tens of thousands must be coming up for hundreds of thousands of, of individuals have applied. And so we've developed, I think, a really, really strong competence around seeing potential. And it's very easy to look at a CV or a LinkedIn profile and say, oh, you know, this, this woman has 10 years at Google. She must be really smart. Typically, what we're doing is actually looking at people very early in their career and saying, does this person have the seed of what it takes? So I suppose my answer to like what sort of person should look at EF and why is it different? is, If you feel that actually you've got that extraordinary potential, but maybe you don't yet have the badges to prove it. Actually, EF is the place that will believe in you from the beginning and put you in the network that allows you to fully maximize and realize that potential.
2: This network point is so important and um, yes we are a talent investor, yes we invest in individuals Um, But That doesn't mean that we don't believe in co-founders. Actually, the core part of EF is helping these individuals uh, find their co-founder. So when they join the program, they're part of a network, um, a network of individuals who are very carefully screened by us for the traits, uh, the abilities and behaviors that we see make individuals most successful. And most importantly, they're part of a group of individuals where everyone is ready to co-found right now. They've quit their job, they are all in, and and, and that creates a really kind of interesting atmosphere where there's this urgency and this kind of impatience to begin getting into teams. I think one of the questions that we get asked a lot is, okay, well, how do you do co-founder matching? You know, How do you connect the people together? The most important thing is firstly the ingredients, so getting the right people and the right composition of individuals. But secondly, it's not about matching, it's about creating social norms that allow individuals to try out different co-founders. If you imagine in the wild, organic co-founder relationships, you maybe try someone and and, and you think it's going okay, but it maybe takes a couple of months to work out that it's not working, by which time you've maybe got a prototype um, and suddenly you've got to unpick this really nasty, difficult thing. At EF, you've got um, either between 49 or 99 other individuals in your cohort that you can experiment with. And so within 48 hours, you can try somebody out, work out whether it's gonna be a good fit or not. And if it isn't, there's still 98 other individuals to co-found with. So what we see is during the eight week period that people have to find a co-founder, people go through about two and a half co-founders. They test out about two and a half co-founders. And 80% of the people that join do find a co-founder through this process. Um, So it's these kind of magic ingredients of you select the right people in the right composition, and then you give them these social norms where it's okay to turn around to someone and say, actually, this isn't working. Let's break up.
1: I think one of the most rewarding parts of this job is that we, you know, we're operating in ecosystems where actually the density of talent networks around starting companies is, is not great. And so actually often people come to EF, they start on their first day, they see the other people in the cohort and they say, these are my people. There's that feeling of belonging that maybe has been lacking before. And so sometimes we talk about it as we're creating a little bubble of Silicon Valley in cities around the world that maybe don't have that um, in the wild, as Alice says.
0: So there's a bunch of different interesting questions that come up from this. So first is, what kind of principles have you learned? Because one of the things that I believe and and I think many smart investors believe or experienced and smart is that co-founders actually, in fact, give you a much higher shot on goal percentage. And also, generally speaking, even though we have iconic folks like, you know, Jeff Bezos, who's like, okay, it's a solo founder. Most often, even at the high, the high arcs, you know, Larry and Sergey, Bill and Paul, et cetera. You co-founders is really important. What principles have you guys found around, you know, this is how uh, what co-founders should look for in each other. Uh, This is how we facilitate and help finding the right co-founders that then you know provide the very first important foundation to this difficult but amazing journey that is entrepreneurship.
2: I can jump in on this one. One of the most important things that we do when people join EF is we help them firstly, understand who they are. Um, As a co-founder, you need somebody who is complimentary to you. uh, And I think that's that's kind of well known, but actually one of the things that we've learned is individuals are often pretty bad at understanding who would be a good complimentary co-founder to them. Broadly, when we build a cohort, we're looking at two kinds of different individuals. About 60% of the people that join us have what we call a technical edge. They have some sort of competitive advantage in a certain technology. You know, they they know something or they can build something that very few other people can build. The kind of people we need to match those with or help connect um, is not CEOs. and I think this is often a a kind of uh, misunderstanding. We call these individuals catalysts. and The reason we call them catalysts is often they have a technical background as well. It's not that they are you know, hire an MBA off the shelf, but they're these individuals who have these often quite unusual, quite impatient, almost fidgety backgrounds where maybe they did a CS degree at university, but then they went on to be, maybe did a year in consultancy, then a year as a product manager in a startup, then maybe tried to found something. And they've got this sort of impatience and frustration. And what we found has worked really well is when you bring these two types of individuals together, um, the catalysts are running around trying to work out, you know, who is the individual in the cohort that they can catalyze and help take to market. Um, I suppose in some ways that maybe simplifies what is, in many ways, a process of um, combining two individuals, their
1: ideas, their skills, their expertise, and seeing what comes from that. I think one thing that's really surprising to us, and maybe surprising to people who haven't been sort of intimately involved with the EF process, is that. It's much less actually about how we do upfront matching and much more about how we give these individuals the tools to test their co-founding relationship. So we always say to people, this is not a marriage on day one. Don't worry so much about making the right choice first time. Make sure that you're constantly testing and evaluating the choice. And so when Alice talks about being able to get a good read in 48 hours, that's not because we make people take a personality test that spits out yay or nay. It's because one of our core beliefs at EF is that a good co-founder makes you more productive. And equally, if you're a good co-founder for someone, you'll make them more productive. And so a really good test is spend 48 hours working together, set yourself an ambitious goal and see what comes out of it. And actually, what we find is when we give people that goal, it's extraordinary what the best teams can get done in 48 hours, certainly in a week. And so what we're constantly saying to people is, test yourself. Don't assume you're in the right team. Say, is this person making me my best self? If the answer to that is constantly yes, that's a pretty good sign that you're on something special.
0: Yep, absolutely. And then the other thing that your earlier answers I think, really should highlight for you know all the folks interested in entrepreneurs, obviously the founders and prospective founders, you know investors, the ecosystems that they're in is this approach to networks. And I think there's two parts of the network. One is the network of founders themselves, right? not just within one class but between classes, right and how that creates additional strength and opportunity for these entrepreneurial efforts. And then the next one is the ecosystem around the founders.
2: Being part of um, EF is getting access, as you say, to not just the immediate network, not just the cohort where you'll find your co-founder, but the now, what is it, two and a half thousand alumni who have been through EF over the last decade. Um, They aren't just based in the same city as you, they're based all around the world. There are two really interesting things that we see. One is that actually more and more now, individuals find out about EF and get referred to EF by our alumni network. Um, Our alumni are now doing more and more of the legwork where they say they meet these interesting outlier individuals that just have so much potential and get them to join EF. One of the reasons they do this, though, is the second reason why our network is so useful is that one of the most common exit routes out of EF, if you don't build a startup with us, is you join one of our alumni companies. So actually individuals know when they join EF that they're gunning to go and build a company, they're gunning to be a founder. But actually, if that doesn't work out, The next best option is they become a very early employee in one of our alumni companies. Um, And, you know, we see our companies growing very fast because they have the opportunity to hire two or three machine learning PhDs out of the EF network very, very quickly from the the most recent cohort that's gone through. Um, And so it both lowers the, uh, the time taken to hire and
1: the cost of hiring. And I do think this network effect increasingly spills over onto the investment side as well. So, you know, there's now at least 700 different investors around the world who've invested in EF companies. And, you know, some of them are because they know EF, you know, they're located with us in one of our sites. But actually, some of them, you know, are are more circuitous route. And what's really exciting is once someone has invested in an EF company, the chance of them investing in a second EF company just goes up so much because the alumni go to bat for each other. Literally in the last week, I was talking to a company out of our Paris cohort that was getting the warmest of warm intros into some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley seed funds who had led that alum seed round to get them to do this new seed round. And that's so powerful. I think, um, I think that ability of founders to refer founders is is really, really valuable. I suppose even more excitingly for us, now that you know there's been several substantial exits from, from EF, there are now founders who have the capital to invest themselves. And you know, what we see is founders recycling capital back into the EF ecosystem. You know, we have several alum LPs in our fund. We have alums who angel invest in, in, in EF companies. And I think once that flywheel starts to turn, you get this very, very powerful effect that founders can make things happen for other founders.
0: You know, classically as an investor, all of your children are beautiful, <laughs> right? But talk about a couple of the companies that were kind of the most startling or perhaps different or interesting to think about of what's come out of EF.
2: So I think one really good example of this coming together of somebody with this kind of deep technical domain alongside this catalyst type individual, we've got a company in Berlin called um, Nostos Genomics. And I remember doing the interview for the CEO, David, and <laughs> in my interview notes, at the end, it says I can't work out if what he's saying is true because if it is it's just so unbelievable that he's achieved this much before turning 25 and so he he had been at university in Switzerland um, was doing a, a, a non-technical degree but it ended up building um, not just the largest computer science hackathon in Europe but it also um, founded the first Hyperloop in Europe as well uh, and got funding for it. He just achieved an enormous amount and was desperate to start trying to find a co-founder and came to EF to, to really find his co-founder. He very quickly, within the first kind of five days of EF, found Rossio. Um, and Rossio had been a medical doctor, but had then retrained um, and gone into academia and ended up doing her postdoc at the Max Planck Institute, where she'd done a PhD in genetic disease. I think this is a really nice combination because they ended up working on uh, Nostos Genomics, which um, speeds up the diagnosis of genetic diseases, where David's drive to achieve his outlier behavior, his willingness to challenge convention, drove forward Rossio's technical background and and created something that neither one really could have created by themselves.
1: I think one of the early companies that gave us real confidence that maybe we were onto something. Was a company from the first cohort in London that we that we ran in the current model where we we backed individuals before they had companies and paid a stipend. So we, we had these two guys join us. They never met before. Um, a guy called Alex Daliak, who um, had done a machine learning degree at Imperial, had a, a little bit of work experience at, at Rocket Internet but, you know, it was still pretty early in his career. And then a very, very promising researcher um, in in computer vision out of Cambridge, who was referred to us by a professor there, a guy called Razvan Ranker. They met at EF, and this was quite early on in the evolution of deep learning. This is sort of 2014. And they had this vision that deep learning was just going to change everything. And they set out looking for a really important problem to apply their research to. And they eventually came up with insurance. So, you know, Millions of people have, sadly, traffic accidents every year and there's something wrong with their cars. And yet it takes so long to get a repair done um, because there's so many humans involved in that process. What they ended up building was a company called Tractable, which uses computer vision basically to do disaster recovery for insurance companies. So they evaluate the damage to a car in real time better than a human. It sounded a little bit crazy back in 2015 when they graduated from EF. Today, that company does tens of millions of dollars of revenue all over the world today. They work with most of the world's leading insurers. It's an extremely fast-growing company. She just had a great profile in the New York Times, if, if listeners are interested. And that's a company that was built from nothing by two people who never met out of their shared, you know, as Alice used the phrase earlier, edge. And I think it's an, it gave us so much faith early on that there was something here. To use a more recent example, a company that is is totally wowing us at the moment out of Singapore, it's a company called C-Mode. C-Mode is a company started by two uh, amazing uh, PhD graduates out of the National University of Singapore who, although they came out of uh, NUS, they're actually both from Iran, uh, Sadaf and Milad, and and they applied their research to building um, what seems to be one of the world's leading uh, pieces of software for predicting and preventing strokes. So it uses a mix of computer vision and computational fluid dynamics uh, to predict strokes. This is a company that's less than three years old and I think it's the fastest company to go through medical regulation that I've ever seen at EF. Just astonishing progress and already being paid for and used in hospitals around the world. Incredible
0: company. Well, it's, I frequently find that the companies themselves are the things that show what are the really interesting things that are happening with an investor or with a you know incubator or with a network. But now let's kind of zoom out and say, where is EF today?
1: So when we first met you, Reid, in your office at LinkedIn back in 2017, EF was still pretty small. We'd been running in London for a little while, but it'd taken us quite a long time to experiment with the model to get to the right version. So really, we'd only been running with the current model in London for really a couple of years and we just opened up in Singapore and our vision that we pitched you was, you know, give us a little bit of money and we'll be able to take this global. We really believe in this idea that the problem we've identified is not just a UK one or a Singapore one. It's, it's around the world. And so what we've done since Greylock invested in 2017 is expand EF. We're now in six locations around the world, London, Paris, Berlin, Singapore, Bangalore and most recently Toronto. So I think at the time that that we met, you know, there were about 300 individuals a year going through EF. That's now 800. We were graduating, you know, probably fewer than 30 companies a year at that time. It's now well over 100. There are now, as Alice mentioned earlier, two and a half thousand uh, individuals have gone through EF, and and I think we're up to about 200 plus companies that have that have gone on to raise follow-on financing and close to a billion dollars of follow-on financing for EF companies around the world. So it's grown pretty quickly, but we. We feel uh, particularly for a non software product, um, but we feel um, we're just getting started i mean it, it strikes us that you know the big macro trends that make entrepreneurship attractive today just keep growing stronger and stronger and you know we see a big part of our mission is being accessible to talent globally I think one of the interesting things that we've learned during the pandemic is is how powerful actually remote is um, you know we had to suddenly run all of these programs remote and um, although we still massively believe in the power of face-to-face interaction, we've definitely learned a lot about how we can be even more accessible by using software to reach even more people.
2: When we expanded, one of the big questions for us was, what would talent be like in these different locations? Would we be dealing with very different types of talent, different aspirations? And we often had the feedback when we were saying, oh, we're going to go into X country. The feedback would be like, oh, but they're not very entrepreneurial. Um, I think what's been really interesting for us is to see that We're not looking for the majority of the population to be entrepreneurial, but in all of the countries that we've gone to, there is this small minority of outlier individuals who are so frustrated with the status quo, who are so fed up with the career options and opportunities in front of them. And they're sort of shaking the railings, desperate to find an alternative career path that allows them to fulfill their potential. And so it's been interesting to see that actually the messaging and the product has remained pretty consistent in all sites. Um, And as Matt said, you know, remote has been really interesting for us because I think in our Singapore cohort during lockdown, you know, we had a team formed where you had one person in New York who was never able to actually get to Singapore, but still the team was formed and got funding. And um, we're beginning to hear more and more of these stories where actually it's not just unlocking a local um, set of talent, but it's really unlocking regional, global uh, entrepreneurial talent as well.
0: I think one of the things you just said, Alice, is extremely important, which is, Entrepreneurship is not for everybody. Entrepreneurship is for a person who is like willing to leave the beaten path to take intelligent risk, to as I usually describe it, jump off a cliff and assemble an airplane on the way down, and that's only for a subset, you know, a very actually select and small subset of any population including in more entrepreneurial areas. Say a little bit about which characteristics of founders that you have found are the right ones to apply to EF, right? And obviously, some baselines are obviously driven and grit and, and learning and intelligence. But what are some of the, the characteristics that may not be as immediately obvious as those?
2: Sure, so this is something that you can imagine that we are fanatical about. Um, We get thousands and thousands of applications each year that we need to whittle down to a couple of hundred. So getting the right couple of hundred really, really matters. And we've learned a huge amount um, over the last almost decade. I suppose there are kind of four things that we look for, um, some which are obvious, some maybe less so. First of all, you have to be smart. Um, and I think what we're not talking about here is not getting all the academic badges. It's not going to the best university necessarily. It's about your point, Reid, about being an infinite learner, somebody who has that pace and speed of learning where, that they can take on the challenge of being a founder. You know, they can rapaciously learn. Um, when I think about one of the examples that we've we've had in the past, you know, we had a guy who had a patent pending on his brain-computer interface. He was working with four different universities and... Um, but he was 18, he hadn't even been to university yet. Um, but he had this kind of rapacious desire to learn and, uh, and to achieve. So you need to be smart, it helps if you're smart and it helps if you're an infinite learner. Secondly, we do like people with a skill and, and largely a technical skill. Um, and as I was saying before, you know, we like our CEO, our catalyst types to have a technical background, even if it's just a very light technical background. Because when you think about team building, it's actually much easier to build that kind of co-founding pair when you have a shared language and shared understanding about how to work together. Those are the kind of ability pieces that we look for. And then there are kind of two key behavior pieces that we look at. The first is you need to be an outlier. You need to be willing to challenge convention. Um, You need to be willing to push back on the status quo, make unpopular decisions, if you like, and take an alternative path. And that's particularly important in these ecosystems where being a founder is often something that your parents disapprove of and your peers disapprove of and are surprised at what what you're doing. And the final thing we look for is you need to be a leader. So you need to have this drive to achieve, this drive to win, this sort of inner competitiveness. I remember interviewing uh, a guy when he was just taking me through his achievements in his life. And he had been on the great British athletics team as a kid, uh, preparing for the Olympics. He'd done his physics uh, degree at Imperial, had come top of his class. He'd also become an electronic dance musician and had his track sampled by one of the world's leading, um, leading le- electronic EDM uh, musicians. He just couldn't stop achieving, even across this kind of very broad range of examples but you can't just do that you also have to take people on that journey you have to build followership um, so yes there's always the kind of you know nutty professor the eccentric person building stuff in their uh, in their garage but those don't necessarily become the scale entrepreneurs we're looking for people who can build scalable globally important companies so you have to take people on that journey you have to be a leader who can develop followership as well
0: Are there any misconceptions about founders or co-founders that you particularly need to help, you know, kind of especially new founders overcome in order to be successful?
1: I think one thing that's um, unusual about Entrepreneur First is in many ways, uh, the core thesis goes against a lot of conventional wisdom from from venture capital, you know, so. You know, if you just look at classic piece of advice that you can Google, you know people say you know start a company with someone you've worked with before, start a company with someone you've known for years, and I understand why that advice is out there. I think if you you know if you're um, in Silicon Valley and you're in this sort of very dense network of potential co-founders, I can see that you would definitely reduce your risk by going with someone that you already know. I think what the way we see the world in you know kind of operating in six ecosystems that are much less dense, where actually it's very likely. You don't know the best co founder for you, they're not in your network. And that's very risky advice. It often means actually settling for a suboptimal partner, someone who can't make you um, succeed. And and we actually think that's much riskier than actually going through a program uh, like EF that can really help you find someone who's really exceptional at what they do and help you build trust and rapport and proof points about your ability to succeed together very quickly. So I think that's like one misconception that, you know, I think. um, you know, rightly, because Silicon Valley has just been so phenomenally successful in building companies, most of the advice out there is a, is very Silicon Valley centric. And for a lot of things, that's absolutely right. You know, a lot of things are invariant across the world. But I actually think that things that are about that very first step that really uh, come down to are you living in one of these very founder and investor dense places or actually somewhere where it's scarce and unusual. I think if you're in that second category, the advice has to be a little bit different. And I think that's what we specialize in really. Uh, yeah.
2: Just to build on Matt's first point there. EF is basically eHarmony, not Tinder. And I think lots of people who have tried to solve this problem of how do you help co-founders find each other, they've they've created Tinder, which is basically like, you know, match someone, see if it works out, very quick relationship, if you like. eHarmony, when you look at eHarmony's figures, eHarmony is an amazing marriage platform. It's not a dating platform, it's a marriage platform where 4% of uh, US marriages now come through eHarmony. there's a sort of interesting general shift towards individuals now finding their partner online. Um, You know, it used to be at the workplace, it used to be through religious organisations, through friends, at bars, and now there's been a a significant rise. I think now it's the the most common way to meet your partner is online. I'd say that if you take that idea and you apply it to this idea of kind of inorganic co-founding relationships, but you realise that, it's not about Tinder, it's about eHarmony, about having individuals who've been carefully screened, where there is a, a very careful process that enables people to test each other, and where you set a bunch of social norms about how committed you are to the process of finding a co-founder. You know, the individuals who come to EF, they've quit their jobs, they're all in. You know, there's a real opportunity cost to come into EF, but it, it means that it uh, enables these very long-term co-founder relationships to, to be built. I remember a really proud moment for me and Matt. Many years ago when we were first starting EF was we had a a demo day and the investors came and saw all the teams and one of the bits of feedback we kept on getting was, oh, so you take teams now. Oh, so have you changed your thesis? You take teams now. We hadn't, it was just that the teams that we were building behaved and uh, were experienced like teams that had worked together for many many years and that was largely down to this this process that we put the teams through but more than that if you look at our data now our our almost decades worth of data um, our teams are more likely to survive than teams that are built organically sort of in the wild if you like and that's because of these sort of norms that we set very early on around feedback and finding the right co-founder for you and and understanding yourself as an individual and who might complement you.
0: Yeah, I think the points that both of you have made are critical to understand. Which is, look, obviously, if you happen to know the right co-founder yourself personally, then you know that can be a great thing. You've got a decade or whatever of depth of relationship. But co-founders are extremely important, and the thing is to be deliberate about, as Alice, you were saying, e-harmony. Like this is the equivalent of an economic marriage, right? Make sure that you're you're doing it, and this is the thing that EF has been. As far as I can see, from my position, you know, here in Silicon Valley, looking at YC and everything else, EF has done the best of this if everywhere in the world. And it's that ability to facilitate kind of organic and kind of trusted relationships that lead to very good co-founding partnerships is extremely important. So let's shift to another part of the network node. I mean, I get asked by a lot of investors about Like, oh my God, there's all these great technical founders that are part of EF and you know, there's these amazingly deep technical companies. How do I participate? What do I do? What's some of the advice that you give to investors about what is the way to connect with and participate in EF in the way that would help them be most successful?
1: Well, the first thing I would say is that um, they should come in and join the party. I mean, one of the really gratifying things that we've seen at EF over the last three years in particular is the internationalization of the investor base. You know, it really felt like um, a few years ago, Seed was, you know, very much a local game. People, you know, only wanted to invest in companies that they could, you know, kind of get an Uber to. And we've just seen that dramatically change over the last few years. And, you know, we now see that, you know, a large proportion of our companies will raise some money from the US in their very first round. So we're really uh, excited to continue to expand that do you think it's something that the pandemic has has only helped accelerate. So, um, in each of our sites, we we have a team that is dedicated to getting the the companies funded, and, and they are, if you like, network nodes. Their job is to um, to signpost and, and triage and and matchmake between companies and investors. As you can imagine, just given the scale of EF the diversity of what we've got in the portfolio at any one time is, is really enormous. So it does take a bit of navigation and we, um, you know, if anyone is interested, I'd encourage them to email, um, you can email me, matt at joinef.com and I can put you in touch with the right person. But we also now have quite a lot of self-serve um, on the website. So all of our demo days now, partly again, because of, because of coronavirus, are online. You can see all the pitch videos online. We also have um, uh, investor matchmaking tools online. So, you know, we, we see this as a huge, part of um, the growth of EF going forward is, you know, particularly in our least developed ecosystems, the ones that have not yet been through, you know, a full cycle, it's pretty extraordinary, the quality of talent available relative to the supply of capital in those places locally. So I think there's really an opportunity for game changing investments, what by Silicon Valley prices uh, standards will seem like very reasonable prices in, in some of those areas. And we're excited to continue to accelerate that trend.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I get as a lens that's interesting, given the scale of EF across a number of different geographies, is who are the kind of quality investors and in geographies outside of Silicon Valley, and that's always been, you know, one of the the additional interesting learnings in terms of, you know, obviously founders and and new interesting tech ideas and everything else that come out from my own participation in EF. It's obviously the suddenly weird time where. You know, people are sheltering in place. You know, one of the things that has has been central to EF and will be, you know, obviously in various modified ways, because we are always learning in the future, has been the in-person connections. But what were some of the kind of surprising learnings from the pandemic?
2: The most surprising learning was around team building. Um, We were very, very worried at the beginning of this year about what would happen to team building outcomes when individuals couldn't meet in person. Um, we'd never tried anything like that before, and yeah, things would have been pretty worrying if team building outcomes had crashed. Interestingly, they seem to be at about ninety percent um, of the levels that we would see during normal times. And the companies that are coming through—we were just doing some investment committees this morning. Companies that are coming through are as good, and interestingly, have as much traction as we would see in non-pandemic times. And I think there's something really here about. Entrepreneurs are highly adaptable. And as you say, infinite learners. And the best entrepreneurs will just learn their way out of a pandemic. Um, and will we'll work out how to edit and adapt their ideas and their companies to be able to make the most of the opportunity. One of the things we were also worried about was that applications would fall. Um, You know, who who is going to quit their job during this um, period of great uncertainty? Interestingly, in every location, applications have risen. And even more interestingly, in London, for example, applications have risen by 8%. From women, they've risen by 37%. So we're seeing a real uh, sort of drive in applications coming through where people say, yeah, I I get a pandemic is going on, but I have the risk appetite and I'm uh, adaptable enough of an infinite learner to be able to capture this opportunity. And there are so many great examples of um, globally important companies that were built during not normally pandemics, uh, but uh, often uh, global recessions or or times of economic hardship. But it's really interesting to see so many individuals applying to EF and recognizing the opportunity that, that comes from, the very weird situation we were in.
1: I think on the investor side a, a similar thing is true, which is, you know, at the start of the pandemic, we were asking, will anyone invest in companies this year? You know, we're gonna graduate all these companies, what will happen? And um, you know, I think I think there was a slow period at the start where people were just figuring this out. I mean this was a really did feel like a once in a generational uh, shock to the system. But I was amazed how quickly that changed. And, and actually what we've seen is not only have our best companies succeeded in raising money, but they've succeeded in raising from a much more international audience than they might have done before. We've seen many more Silicon Valley firms look into Europe and into Asia, because you know if you're doing everything over Zoom, it doesn't really matter if they're a mile away or 10,000 miles away, it's all the same. And so I think that's a big thing that we, that we hope we'll be able to continue to capitalize on. But maybe even more importantly, I think we've just seen that our our best companies in the portfolio have been able to embrace the change that the pandemic's caused and really, you know, ride that wave, you know, hopefully both in a way that's economically valuable for the company and socially really valuable. I mean, maybe my favorite example, we have this company called Acurix, which we funded in London, you know, maybe four years ago. They provide software to doctors, primary care doctors, allowing them to you know, kind of schedule appointments and um, communicate with their patients. During the pandemic, they built over a weekend a video uh, consultation feature, which ended up having a million uses in its first month. And it took uh, Acurix's market share from around 40 percent at the start of the pandemic to 98.5 percent of UK doctors using it where we are now in the pandemic. And um, it's just pretty striking to see how adaptable entrepreneurs have been in, in really seeing like what does the world need in this moment and, and moving with that. And we find it really inspiring. And I think it probably points to why, as Alice said, applications are up. You know, there's a lot of change in the world right now, and that means there's a lot of need and uh, a lot of opportunity to build for that need.
0: So, Alice, one of the things that you were mentioning, and this is one of the things that I've also had the pleasure of by you know, being on the board of EF, is noting how diversity and inclusion naturally falls out of just how Entrepreneur First looks for amazing talent. Say a little bit about how, you know, kind of what the diversity of the of the entrepreneurs, of the co-founding base and, and what you have found there and what the trajectories are there.
2: The key thing about looking for potential rather than looking for experience is that often experienced individuals have you know, come through institutions and systems that are often biased against underrepresented groups. Um, one of the key things about looking for potential is identifying what potential looks like for different underrepresented groups at the point where they apply to EF, which is, you know, we're looking for individuals who sort of, you know, have, have less than six years of experience, somewhere in that kind of, uh, in that range. And um, Hands up, we could still do a much better job on diversity. Um, When we first started, uh, Matt and I naively thought we'd solve the problem overnight. Um, So much so that we actually started up a not-for-profit called Code First Girls, uh, which has been wildly successful, um, but hasn't necessarily um, shifted the the diversity stats at EF. Um, Just a side note on Code First Girls, we we set this up uh, six, seven years ago um, with the idea of teaching women to code for free in university. We've now just hit 20,000 women um, talk to code for free, uh, 50% of which come from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. So we're very, very proud of that. But if you look at EF, we're still significantly underrepresented. Uh, With women, we're about uh, 20% in terms of other kind of underrepresented groups. We try and reflect the um, diversity of the cities that we're in. And we're doing a pretty good job, but I think for any investor in the space, anybody who's investing in technology, this has to be front of mind. It has to be something you're always paranoid about because it's it's really hard to change and you can only make change if it's front of mind and it's something that you're actively investing in. So for example, we invest extra time and extra resource in sourcing individuals from underrepresented groups rather than just assuming they're gonna come to us.
0: And then for our, our last question, 2021. What lens do you see on 2021, both of you?
1: Well, 2021 is going to be a very big year for EF for a number of reasons. Uh, One, we're going out to raise a new fund, which is always exciting. Two, we'll be seeing the results of our first Toronto program, which will be the sort of culmination of the first wave. Of expansion that we did over the last three years. But three, I think it's a year where we really start to um, look at the next phase of of growth for our mission. So, you know, our mission is to transform the lives of the world's most impactful people through entrepreneurship. And, you know, one of the big lenses we put on that is accessibility who can reach us and and how do they reach us? And so, you know, we've got big, big plans about how we uh, ensure that we can be uh, accessible to even more of the world's best talent. I think one of the things that we're really excited about is is thinking not only about that in terms of geographic sites you know where do we have feet on the ground but as i said how do we use software how do we use the capital that our investors have entrusted us with as as tools to to make sure that we're reaching the best talent so we have some big plans i think there's ways that you know we could 10x our reach at the top of the funnel and you know hopefully that has huge impact in terms of the the caliber and the uh, and the reach of the companies that we produce at the bottom
2: i feel very lucky that Almost a decade into founding EF I still feel so inspired by our mission you know to transform the lives of the most impactful people that is really really hard to do um, and we're just getting started you know we want to build a globally important institution that unlocks talent and um, there is much more to come
0: Absolutely and as we've been talking about founders throughout this you know the fundamental characteristic of great founders is infinite learners both of you are I know that from personal experience and I hope our Listeners in the podcast have derived some things from those learnings, which I have learned from you guys along this journey. So Matt Alice, thank you for this podcast across the pond, and I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks so much, Reid. This concludes this episode of Gray Matter. You can subscribe to our podcast on soundcloud.com slash graylock partners, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find new episodes and blogs on our website, greylock.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at GreylockVC. I'm Reid Hoffman, and thanks for listening.